Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Q Commentator. My goodness, two episodes, one week after another, like a normal series. It'll never catch on, uh, for those of you at least who are subscribing to each one. Uh, how are you? I hope you're well. Um, incidentally, mentioning subscribing, um, please do that. Hit that button. Um, I'm sure that'll help the analytics or at least tell more people that we've got something going on here or something. Um, thank you to all of you who tuned in to episode five, which featured John Murray. Uh, do have a listen back to that if you haven't. Uh, thanks to the Ox 4 who left a review on iTunes. Most enjoyable and informative. Thank you. Uh, thank you to Richard Lowther, who, uh, who tweeted at Q Commentator, loving the podcasts. I'm listening to them back to front. Keep them coming. So it's, yeah, probably going to be quite a few episodes till Richard realises I've read out that message. Um, a huge thanks to Deke Fleming, um, who, uh, who messaged me, well, about playing football in his lounge growing up and, uh, and that kind of image uh, with, a, with a sponge ball that wasn't going to break the 28-inch 28, 28 TV they had. Um, he said it didn't matter who the commentator was, I would absorb all of them. Jock Brown, Barry Davis, the incomparable David Begg on Radio Scotland, they have all at some point or another been the soundtrack to my life. I've long been fascinated by sports commentary and I can't begin to tell you how amazing your podcast series has been. You yourself are fascinating and the guests have been everything you'd want them to be. Funny, informative and utterly engaging. Thank you so much for the series. I'm now off to listen to the Ian Robertson episode for what must be the hundredth time. It's like listening to the perfect comedy, drama, infomercial, lullaby. Absolutely wonderful. Deke, this is the reason I do it. Um, I love these voices. I love finding out what makes them tick. Um, And I'm so pleased that all of you who are tuning in uh, are enjoying that too. Thank you so much for that message. It uh, it was so lovely to read. Um, To this episode, then number six of series two the longest lasting six episode series ever given it started last september but shush um alison mitchell has established herself as one of the great modern cricket commentators of our time from tennis to pommel horse ali's covered a number of other sports but it is her cricket that's her bread and butter Alison has won the Sports Journalists Association Award for Sports Broadcaster of the Year, reporting not just on sport, but also uh, on other more serious or poignant world moments too. Um, In this episode, we will hear, well, how Alison has a fair bit of sporting acumen about herself, um, how there was a career that began in reporting before commentating really figured, uh, learning from the great Richie Benno, 
I know, uh, becoming the first woman to commentate on Test Match Special, the institution that is, uh, broadcasting on some of the world's more serious or tense moments, not just in a sporting context, as I've, uh, as I've referred to there. Um, in contrast, then, uh, keeping the fun and the laughs behind the mic. Um, really enjoyed speaking to Alison Mitchell. Uh, please do leave a review on iTunes. Tell your mates uh, about the series and enjoy our final episode of Series 2 uh, before Series 3 starts next week. Shush, um, I just need a little sense of order. Um, I should also say that uh, there's a little sort of middle 10 minutes of this one uh, where uh, a little technical glitch meant we needed to use the Zoom sound of our chat rather than the recordings we had at each side. So... Uh, it won't affect your listening experience too much, but I thought I'd be honest about it. So uh, so there's a little bit of that in the middle, but uh, yeah, it should be absolutely fine. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it's Q commentator, Alison Mitchell. Well, Alison Mitchell, thank you very, very much for joining me. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you, Nick. I'm, I'm sorry I haven't got a kind of hashtag live commentary t-shirt on. I should have been <laughs> merged up to the max to, to come and chat to you. But no, it's good to, good to see you as well as we're, we're chatting via a camera as well. So yeah, very well. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. And uh, and and ever the pro, you're recording at your and I'm recording at mine. So people, you know, they 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 can operate under the idea that we are we are sat in the same place. Um, so much content these days is occurring under lockdown. People may listen to this at some point when uh, when we are in brighter times. But uh, listen, thanks so much for for joining me. Um, a a Northampton schoolgirl then, uh, Wellingborough School, uh, captaining the school tennis, netball, and athletic squads. A uh, bit of football and hockey too. A consideration in the early years of becoming a vet, uh, English, German and geography A-levels, a uh, bit of time at BBC Northampton as a broadcast assistant. We'll, we'll sort of maybe maybe uh, work that one in a second. But um, it's sort of... Formative that, that years, says to, Well, exactly. And, and it, it says to me that there's, there's, there's a clear sporting passion. Um, and then there are some very sensible A-levels to perhaps reassure <laughs> mum and dad that, that there's a sensible career in the pipeline. But um, you were obviously a sporty girl. Yeah, loved sports. It was just what I did. In fact, as I got older and then worked in sport, and I find I think it's the same for a lot of colleagues, you go into sport because you love it. And then once you work in it, you find you play it less and less and less because you're always out watching it and commentating on it, which is the next best thing. Uh, but yeah, I just I just played everything. That was where the, I mean, the sporting passion came really from playing it rather than like I wasn't a sporting commentary aficionado when I was young, if you like. I mean, I, of course, mm. you know, remember the 1988 Olympics and Barry Davis commentary. And because I played well, hockey, I, mean, I was pretty young then. But um, yeah, hockey was a massive part of my life, even bigger part when I went to university, because that was sort of the sport that I focused on. But yeah, at school, I just had a, had a go at everything and fortunately seemed to be sort of quite good at it. But that was really, yeah, it was, it was friends and it was being part of a team and that collectiveness mm. and that um, trying together. I mean, we didn't always succeed. We, we, as a hockey team, I remember we made a lot of finals and lost in the finals, mostly penalties. <laughs> so that was always heartbreaking. But yeah, massively formative years playing all that sport for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and where would you say that, that sort of sporting acumen came from? I mean, obviously going to a good school kind of helps, but, um, but I know, I know that, you know, obviously cricket is a major player in, in everything I'm sure we'll talk about. And, and you were in a big, you were part of a sort of big cricket family, but, but was that coming from, from one side of the parentage and equal weighting? Where, where did that fit? 
I don't know, as kids, me and I had an older brother, so my brother and I and our you know, friends that we sort of grew up with, you know, lived across the road, we were just kids who loved the outdoors and we were just always out either on our bikes and we lived in a, grew up in a village from when I was four years old and we were always out on our bikes. We were fortunate that we had a, you know, a, a, a garden that we could play sports in and kick balls around. We could you know, construct our own sort of daily Thompson, Thompson decathlon courses, you know, out of garden canes for hurdles and things like that in the garden. Brilliant. You know, we lobbed javelins. Um, so we used our imaginations a lot to be active um, outdoors. And I guess then once I did go to um, you know, my secondary school where sport you know, was a, a more of a formal part of life, then, yeah, I got a chance to, well, that's the first time I got introduced to hockey, for example, and I, I could actually, yeah, take, take it forward. But I mean, I think my, my dad was the, you know, the big club cricketer. And so that love, you know, got passed through to us and my brother um, you know, massively into his cricket as well and played it. Uh, my mum, you know, just enjoyed social tennis and squash, you know, when she was sort of younger and growing up. So there's mm. probably a bit of genetic maybe hand-eye coordination there. But I mean, we weren't, you know, yeah. I didn't have parents who were professional sports people or anything like that. We just... Yeah, sport was often on the telly. Um, it was a part of life. It wasn't our be all and end all by any stretch. Mm. Um, you know, I also enjoyed doing a bit of dance and, and music was a massive part of my sort of school years as well. So oh, yeah. I, it was always quite a kind of a rounded. Um, I liked having what's a, what's, go a what bit sort of everything. music? What what eras what do you fall fall into? Oh, more playing it actually rather than listening. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I played the guitar. I started playing when I was about eight years old. Um, just oh, very wow. basic chords um i actually used to play the guitar at our uh, the church that we went to so i would with a friend of mine who sang um i'd often yeah on a sunday so sort of like through my school years i you would are, um, you are completing play, this, play middle, this just... middle class picture that we've got Alison. <laughs> it is just it's all coming together yeah but you know yeah the guitar is one of the best things i ever did actually um yeah i loved it i learned classical but then yeah would just pick up and learn to strum and play whatever I liked, but got hours and hours whirled away with friends just mucking around um, playing Fantastic. music. But um, yeah, the sports that combined with broadcasting sort of happened when I was about 16 and got an opportunity to do my GCSE as it was then. Um, yeah, GCSE, I'm still GCSEs, isn't it? Um, yeah. GCSE, glad to know that, you know, some things in life haven't changed. Um, <laughs> yeah. did my GCSE work experience placement at BBC Radio Northampton, as you mentioned. That came about because I'd done a little bit of, I suppose at school, like in English classes, I quite enjoyed, um, you know, when we got a chance to do a bit of public speaking. If I had to make a speech or do readings, I didn't mind doing it. I quite enjoyed doing it. And well, yeah, then and, going and on did to... You, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned playing music. Were you in school plays and that kind of stuff? Um, yes, I would not say that acting was my forte, however, but I did, yeah, by the time I was in my sixth form, drama was the one thing that I hadn't really cracked. So believe it or not, I got a part uh, playing uh, the headmistress in uh, Miss Jean Brodie, Pride of Miss Jean Brodie, Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And yeah, it, it, I was okay. I, would, I had to put on a <laughs> Scottish accent throughout. I think I realised that I was never going to be an actress, but you know, I had a crack. I had a go. Yeah, yeah, it is all about having a go. Um, so, and then sort of to, to, to move through your sort of early life a little bit, um, playing hockey for Northamptonshire, you mentioned Midlands Development Squad, um, Nottingham University Hockey Club captain, I understand. Um, now, I'm guessing that, you know, not only is there a love of sport here, but, I mean, hockey captain, that suggests you can handle a drink or two as well, right? 
If I told you that I was actually designated tour leader in my third year. Oh my year. <laughs> lord! Oh my lord! Yeah, I, it was. Um, yeah, ho hockey was brilliant. Um, friends, which yeah, I'm still in touch with now because you've just shared some very, very <laughs> uh, sort of life affirming, maybe um, experiences. That's an um, excellently polite way to put it. Good. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, university. Sometimes I played hockey six days out of seven. I think Monday night you could play, uh, we, we had training Monday night, Tuesday you could play hall hockey, Wednesday was the university's leagues, Booster as it was then, it's now Bucks. Um, Thursday night, training again. Uh, Friday, often off, but was our kind of, you know, club bonding, which was in the local nightclub called The Zone. And uh, then early, early Saturday local league, usually about 9am pushback, which was a killer, uh, Saturday morning. And then Sunday's off. Maybe do a little bit of study and get that, get that coursework yeah. in. Well, while you're racing through a hangover um, <laughs> that you built up all week. Um, so, you know, it, it sounds like a, an enjoyably full life with plenty of, of sport that you had going on. And you mentioned, obviously, then you had that, that chance at 16 to do a bit with, with BBC Northampton. Mm. Um, and I know that you've sort of looked back, I think, in another interview that I read, you, you sort of thought, oh, well, actually, although it wasn't a dream I necessarily had, actually, I was, I was getting mates around and, and doing radio shows or, or having fun things. And you mentioned public speaking. So there's, there's an element of all of this coming together, isn't there? When, when, did, when did the path come together and when did, you, when, did, when did it all sort of start to point in one direction? Yeah, you mentioned those radio shows. That was just, again, something that I used to do, you know, for fun with friends. We would, you know, get the old cassette deck and, you know, a couple of old microphones that, you know, were knocking around the house and we'd just love to, we sort of did like mock Blue Peter programs, you know, here's one I made earlier, this sort of thing. And um, so I guess that was always there. Like I didn't remotely at that age think that radio or broadcast or media was something that I, you know... I was exactly the same, yeah, by the way. Seriously there, are, considered. there are still tapes that exist of, of me talking like that, doing a little <laughs> radio show. Oh, we've got a mock, like, six o'clock news. You know, we made little sort of, you know, banners for the wall and everything, logos. Um, that's when my, yeah, dad got a camcorder at some stage in the 90s, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be very the same, <laughs> very, very similar. So it was really the coming together started from when I was 16, did that work experience placement, and that, that gave me the radio bug. But when I was at Radio Northampton, the sport element came in for me because really for me, the coolest show of the week and the only one that I really wanted to be involved in was the Saturday sports show. But doing the work that I did at the radio station across my sixth form meant that I'd go in like one night a week on a, on a Monday, I'd finish school, I'd get across to Northampton, and I, would, I had a job that was 5.30 p.m. until 10 p.m., and it involved answering the phone lines, like wrapping up the prizes, posting them off for the competition winners, sorting out yep. all the music for the next day's programmes. And it was just a brilliant grounding in terms of how a radio station worked. And one of those jobs yeah. was also, I don't know whether you remember the old reel-to-reel -reel tape that used to be used for yeah, editing. Yeah. All these tapes, you would have to empty the, the reels into these big wheelie bins. So literally one of my jobs was just pulling off these reels of tape into the wheelie bins, then dumping them out in this skip out the back. But it gave you how really good, exactly, gave me a really good grounding though and an all-round picture of how Radio Station worked because I did get to help out across a range of programmes. And in my school holidays, gave you more of a chance to sort of get involved in like the Northampton Balloon Show, for example, where Radio Northampton always had a stand or you might get to go out with the radio car and help out the presenter. So, yeah, really, really grateful for, for that opportunity. And the one piece of advice that I remember receiving during that time was really what did set me on my way. 
because of course you start to ask people, well, look, if I want to do this seriously, what do I do now? What do I do next? Mm. And mm. everyone's got a different pathway. And I mean, you would have found that chatting to all the other commentators. There's no right or wrong. And I get contacted by students a lot for, for advice. And there is no set path or prescriptive way of doing it. But my way of doing it was I followed the advice where someone just said, if you've got the opportunity, go away and you know get a good degree in a subject you enjoy because university was on my horizon. And, and then you can do a postgrad diploma in broadcast journalism. And that specifically trains you to be a sports journalist. Yep. And so that's what I decided I would do. So lots of applications formed later and lots of um, hockey tours and nights in the zone in, in Nottingham and, and a geography degree at the end of it. And eventually a qualification as a broadcast journalist as well. Yeah, well, there you go. And and actually a sort of almost almost the right path compared to some of the some of the other people. I mean, you know, that, that's that's getting the kind of keep, keeping mum and dad happy, having the fallback plan, but then uh, go, going for the other go for the, you know, the, the perhaps the more vocational path or the thing you were most interested in. And and so, I mean, somewhere within within that journey was being the person that's chucking reels out in the bin and, and going out in the radio car. But then that moment where you were going to put yourself on air and you did want to do more stuff. So, so there was, there was clearly a drive in there to, to actually want to use the voice and, and get on the air yourself. Where do, do you sort of remember wanting to, to make that step? Yeah, there were a few moments, I suppose. There are a few disasters as well. <laughs> um, I, I do remember one time I got an opportunity to help out on the Radio Northampton breakfast show. I had been, you know, I'd been in and shadowed. Unfortunately, I clearly didn't make correct enough notes because one of the jobs was to record the morning circuit, as I would say, which was basically take the, the feed from London of all the actuality for that morning's news bulletin. And you had to stack, stack up each tape, label each one clearly, you know, inwards, outwards, duration, you know, little sticky labels, and then line them all up with the requisite script ready for the newsreader when they came in. Unfortunately, when the six o'clock news began, I was down in the studio and the news booth uh, was upstairs. So the voice kind of pipes in over the airwaves and da, 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 the six o'clock news. Overnight, there was a fire and da, 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 da. Let's get the latest so-and-so reports. I'm sorry, we can't bring you that report now. Let's move oh, on to the next dear. story. The next story, da, 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 da. Let's bring you the latest so-and-so reports. I'm sorry, we don't seem to be able to bring you that story. Oh, my L- Lord. Literally, instead of recording each actuality... And each report, I had erased each tape. <laughs> so I thought oh, my I thought my broadcasting career had started and ended, literally there and then. Uh, but yeah, so you know, Radio Northampton gave me a little bit uh, the odd chance, and um, to be on air, <laughs> mostly actually doing the a, a pub quiz that um, that was done in the regional program. I'd come on and like you know, read the answers and be a bit of a sidekick occasionally. But then more seriously, there was a bit of a, a, a moment when. I had I'd spent a summer between my geography course and then going off to actually train as a journalist. I'd I'd packed a summer full of work experience, which is again was, you know, really fortunate. I, I you know used I don't know got in where I could. My contacts at Radio Northampton put me in touch with people at Radio Nottingham. Um, so all the little bits you've done along the way sort of stack up. And I had spent a season as a runner with Channel Four Cricket. That came about because I'd done a dissertation based on television and cricket and shadowed with Channel 4 they'd invited me back and, and given me some work uh, but there, when I then went and did my geography um, when I then went to do my postgrad course the 
uh, exec producer rang me up uh, towards the end of it to basically invite me back to work for them again the following season as a, uh, a production assistant, which is sort of the very next step up from, you know, what I was as the runner. So it was yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely a step, a step up. It was a step up in the behind the scenes uh, pathway, I suppose. And, and ultimately someone that was going to make you tea. Uh, someone might have made me a cup of tea by that stage. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I remember clearly sort of having a bit of a, it felt like a bit of a sliding doors moment. I felt as if I said yes to that. I was very much, I was in, I was in the industry. I was being given a paid role. But I knew by then that I wanted to broadcast and I knew by then that I also loved the idea of commentating. I wanted to be behind Mike watching the action because part of that experience of being a runner taught me that you can spend your life working in sports for television and you might never see the inside of a sporting arena. You can be in a truck in the car park in the dark for five days of a test match and for me, it well, absolutely... some of the world's best people do a very uh, well, good job, obviously. Absolutely, but, but... no, no, they oh, they're way more skilled than I than I ever would be at anything they do. Uh, but but for me, but they, yeah, but yeah, they're not it, inside, are they? No, it ignited the passion that actually for me it was the sport, and it was about describing and, and living the sport more so than I suppose the sort of technicality of creating a, a beautiful program, which is the skill of the directors and then the producers. And yeah. So, so that cemented it for me. And so I, I found myself turning down an opportunity to actually go and rejoin the Channel 4 cricket team because I just felt I needed to pursue being on air. Mm. So who knows, you know, what direction I might have taken if I had, you know, yeah, accepted the offer and, and gone back to Channel 4. Things might have gone differently. Um, it, happily right. as it turned out, I think it was the right choice for me to make because I... Yeah, left college, started applying for work at, at actual proper, yeah, at sort of full-time jobs with um, the BBC whenever they came up. And eventually I did get a job at the BBC Asian Network on their sports desk. So I guess I was sort of up and running at that point. Yeah, so, I mean, the Asian Network gig that, that came in 2002, um, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think it's not come up so much in the in the previous chats that we've that, that I've had and um I think Sarah Orchard is is probably someone that would tap into it a little more but um is is the sort of background actually that you you had once you started to get on air with your experience doing reporting and being in ground and and covering all sorts of things and actually you know spending as many years and and in as many roles as as you did as a reporter before perhaps the commentating became as as regular as as certainly it is now but um I mean, you, you mentioned there, which, which I sort of, I almost feel like in, in the story, there is that there's a little gap missing in, in what we've heard from you in, in this conversation is that you said, you, you know, you mentioned, well, I, and, and I thought I want to get on air, but I want to be commentating. So, so that obviously fell in at some point. Can you remember sort of how that became a consideration and, and what your thoughts were, thoughts were on, on achieving it, obviously with, with the, uh, the elephant in the room being not many girls, not many girls do that or did that? Well, I think for me, I that never actually was much of a consideration for me. I think oh, I had grown up around boys, with boys, always playing sport with, you know, my older brothers, with my cousins and sort of being being around a sort of male environment wasn't I don't know, I was never really conscious of sort of you know, the, the fact that there weren't really, you know, any any women doing it particularly. The, the idea of commentating definitely, I think, was set in. That seed was sown with the time that I spent with the Channel 4 team. 
because, yeah, as I said, I, I was very conscious that summer of getting a view on all angles of, of sport. And even by mm. then, I wasn't completely sure whether, um, yeah, did I, want, did I want to do TV or, or radio? I think radio always felt like that was the place you, you started and then you maybe progressed into TV. But and I, who was doing the lead commentary on Channel 4 at that time? Well, Richie Benno was uh, the number one. Blimey. I mean, that was, okay. yeah, you can imagine yeah. when someone says, would you like to be a runner for us on Channel 4 Cricket? And, and you realise you're going to be making Richie Benno a cappuccino, as was his uh, <laughs> drink of choice uh, every day. But yeah, another no, team, it was yeah, Richie Benno, uh, Mark Nicholas at Dermot Reeve. Uh, Mike Catherton was working for them. Um, Simon Hughes was the analyst. Uh, oh, yeah. And actually, yeah, Sybil Rusco was the presenter reporter of the Saturday Roadshow that they did then so mm. yeah it wasn't a sort of all male on air team in sure when it came to the actual commentating it, it was um, but I just always sort of mixed it with boys and, and men and always kind of could hold a, my own. Sounds like so. you're su- yeah it sounds like you're suggesting I always felt like I was one of the boys so why wouldn't they give a job to one of the boys I mean it's sort of well, in, in, in a yeah, sense. In, in, in a way but the idea of sort of being one of the boys I don't like particularly either because you, you need to be yourself and I'm obviously of not course, a boy. Of course of course. But yeah and no, I get what you're saying I, I just fitted in it never felt as if here were males and females because actually behind the scenes on the Channel 4 team there were a number of women as well so actually Great. as a whole the team was really mixed and, and the women you know had, had a variety of senior positions and everyone was completely equally respected. So yes, yeah. the on air was very much the, the men commentating, but actually the Channel 4 crew was just brilliantly mixed and a great bunch of people, male, female, um, whatever, just great bunch of people. Um, yeah, and, it, and I guess it, it's little surprise that if you're working around the great Richie Benno, that <laughs> a bit of ambition to become a commentator is is going to be perhaps where it takes you right if you if you're if you're in the shadow of greatness like that then uh, then that's a fairly lovely aspiration to have I imagine yeah I mean I felt very fortunate and I was really I had a really heightened awareness of the fact I had an amazing opportunity that very few other people would ever have been afforded which was to just sit and watch and listen at close quarters to the greatest cricket commentator television has had, I believe. And, mm. and, I, and I did. I made sure that if I wasn't you know, racing around the ground with my headset on, taking you know, meals to cameramen and bottles of water to the crew in the trucks, that yeah, if I could grab five minutes, I would just lend an ear and listen. And even that's what I say to students now, is that the easiest way to learn is just is to switch on your TV and switch on your radio and listen with a critical ear. You know, make notes if you need to, but actually listen with mm. a critical ear. Don't just let it wash over you like like you sort of do, you know, when you're being entertained by commentary. You're, you're listening, but you're not necessarily mm. paying an, a, acute attention. So, you're, yeah. You'll no doubt have, have, advi- have advice, you know, and, and, and learnings overall. But can you remember what you were, what you felt you learned, what you observed from, from someone like Richie himself? Well, from a TV commentary perspective, he was always about less being more. And he, he had some sort of very particular kind of commentary lessons, if you like, um, in that, you know, it's always about saying, um, you know, nev- never saying we or I, you know, it's always the team. You are the third person describing what is going on. Um, he, he was big on perspective as well in that, you know, dropped catches is not a tragedy. He'd say, you know, 
um, you know, famine in Ethiopia is is a tragedy. This is you know, yeah. dropped catches. This is, is not, not so... a battle and a war, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, and and it's about adding to the picture. So there was, yeah. He, he had some very particular sort of lessons, but it was more, I think, again, that experience really just to see how a cricket commentary box operated mm. uh, was, was, was amazing grounding and, and inspiring, kind of to instill in me that fact that, yeah, no, I, I, I want to do that one day. And, and I, I had this sort of insane belief that I could and, and that I would somehow. I don't really Fantastic. know why, because it, it sounds really, it sounds like I must have been arrogant to have thought that at age 21 to think you know I, I I have confidence that I know enough about the game that one day I'll be able to to do this um I think it's I, I think, think, think yeah. self-belief is allowed you know Maybe. I think uh, <laughs> I think I think you know your your Northamptonshire background and 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 what you've you know what we know of your of your upbringing allows you to be as British and and uh, reserved as the rest of us all and uh, and go oh, I can't I can't be self-effusive how someone will take me down surely I'm sure if you were born with you know American blood from the east coast or the west coast you would be perfectly entitled to feel <laughs> as as confident in your in your talents and abilities and to tell other people about them but you know it's, it's brilliant and, and and ultimately has has probably been the fire in you that's given you the confidence to go on I'm sure um, I mean just to touch on on the reporting side of things again and, and we'll come back to the commentary in earnest in a moment but um, you know you you were in over a number of years in reporting and, and you know I'm, I'm sure you still still will as well but you've you've certainly had some challenging moments in, in, in covering various stories and tournaments and um, you know the death of, of Bob Wilmer comes to mind you were you were reporting after the terror attacks in Mumbai um, the death of Australian cricketer Philip Hughes and, and broadcasting from from his funeral and I, I remember hearing you on air at that point um, you know some very emotionally trying times which not only requires a certain amount of skill in broadcasting, but but you know is something that then allows you to be able to bring probably the right tone and pathos to commentary and, and live events going forwards in that other discipline. I mean, how do you feel being a reporter, not only in terms of experience on air, but but has informed your voice as a commentator? First of all, I think being a reporter absolutely laid the foundations for me being able to commentate. So on on two fronts, really. First of all, absolutely the 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 art, the mechanics of reporting, the disciplines of as I learnt on radio, and um, the disciplines of radio reporting: economy of words, speaking to time, um, giving the right facts, adding a bit of description. All of that you you learn on the job through doing reporting. I don't think anyone. You know, it's not necessarily fair to sort of drop someone in and expect them to be able to commentate. You know, it all you you learn over a period of time, but importantly, also the process of being a reporter and getting, um, as one of my managers at the BBC used to say, getting air miles um, mm. sort of in, into your into your legs, if you like, yep. is is that you you gain the audience's trust. And that's such a key part of being a broadcaster, sort of being mm. being authentic, being true, uh, but knowing that the, yeah, earning the audience's trust because if people don't believe what you say and believe in it and trust you that you're delivering something with gravitas, then it's very, very hard to commentate uh, with authority. And 
it was necessary absolutely to do the years of reporting and the miles up and down the motorways and the hours at county cricket grounds that, that I did to build up that stack of experience so that yeah across you know wide range of things it means that when you are actually behind the mic in a completely live situation that you can respond and you have got experiences to fall back on and you have that understanding of of balance as well and light and shade and not leaping to conclusions you know if you're in a situation mm. and as I found myself in in um, Pakistan in 2005 which was just after the um, the London terror attacks and it was the first first well it's the first England men's tour that I'd been on but it was also the first to involve really heavy duty security so you know we yeah. were in armed convoys on the way to the ground so that was the backdrop you know against which that tour was on and I remember being at the test match in Faisalabad and there was suddenly a massive explosion and there was debris suddenly spilt across the outfield and the crowd was sort of in a bit of a frenzy suddenly and the players kind of started running from the field to the pavilion and and you didn't know what happened everyone's instinct was thinking oh my god it's a bomb oh my god a bomb's gone off you yeah. couldn't say that yeah. on air because you didn't know you know that sort of thing again I think that intuition sort of comes from experience of of understanding and knowing not to overreact not to leap to conclusions to have that sense of perspective right let's just hold on a minute what has happened describe what you can see don't stray from the facts what can we see? What what do we know? What don't we know? And be very clear and yeah. calm on the airwaves. And I was reporting that test match for the Asian Network. And Incredible. I, I don't think I'd have been able to have handled that even well enough then if I didn't have, you know, a few years of reporting experience before me, even at that point. But certainly when it came to doing ball by ball commentary, mm. albeit that when I was younger, I was saying that, you know, I never felt out of place in a in a male environment. When it actually came to start doing my first ball by ball, I was very acutely aware of the media environments that I was in at that time, and the fact Where was that. It? Well, my first, my first, again, there was first county commentaries and first England commentaries, and the first county commentary um, was at Chelmsford. I'm pretty sure. I think it was a Northampton Essex game, the Pro Forty. And so it's a very low key game. Um, mm. You know, no no pronouncements were made about the fact that I was going to be you know leading commentary, and that was the same when it came to me doing my first England commentary in two thousand and seven, and that was the World T Twenty in South Africa. Um, and my summarizers were Ian Chapel and Jeff Boycott. Some might have said that was a mm-hmm. baptism, baptism, baptism of fire, but <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'd had the opportunity to get to know both beforehand. And again, that, that's another part of commentary is being comfortable with your summarizers and them being comfortable with you. And I'd had that opportunity. Absolutely. And again, because of the work and the experience I already had, they were familiar with my work. So they knew that I knew what I was talking about. But yeah, I, I was very aware then that I was... Yeah, doing commentary at a time, if you remember 2007 was just when Jackie Oatley, who's a very good friend of mine, um, has had done her first match of the day commentaries and there'd been an almighty mm. storm and Jackie had yeah. had to put up with all sorts. So I was doing my first commentaries, sort of you know, having lived through that experience with her as, as a best friend to then doing, doing my own first commentaries. And you know, TMS had had Donna Simmons um, commentate for them a few matches in 99-2000. She was a, a Bayesian a lawyer by profession. 
um, Peter Baxter had sort of discovered her. She did do sports broadcasting out in the Caribbean and had invited her to do a few games. And but there had been nobody before her and nobody since. It had been a decade and people just didn't really, you know, the yeah. whole the whole scene was was male broadcasters. So I was very, very acutely aware then and, and put an enormous amount of pressure on myself to not stuff it up, basically. Because <laughs> I, I didn't want to stuff it up for maybe another decade to come where there wouldn't have been an opportunity for another woman. Because it wouldn't have been, Nick, that thing of... You know, Alison Mitchell's a terrible commentator. You know, she got things wrong. Like, we, you know, we don't like her. It would have been female commentators are terrible, you know? It would. That's, I, it, I'd love to tell you it wouldn't have been, but of course it would. And I, I was so well aware of that. So I felt like I couldn't put a foot wrong at all, you know? And it was, you know, you don't want to put a foot wrong as a commentator at all. Of course you don't. But, you know, in a, in, in a live broadcast, yeah, even now you listen and people will sort of correct themselves if they you know call mid on instead of mid off or they you know mistake a fielder and they correct themselves but it felt as if at that time in that um, climate that if I had mistaken the name of a fielder that someone was waiting to to leap on it and would have used it as a stick to beat the future of all female commentators with so yeah it was, yeah, it was it a big pressure you're, you're ending up doing some of your early commentary with, like you say, that sense of not getting something wrong rather than feeling free and relaxed enough to do something great. Yeah, that's true, actually. I think I put a lot... Well, I did. I know I put a lot of pressure on myself to be absolutely correct. But also, it probably made me, I'd hope, a better commentator in the long run because I did want to go the extra mile because I felt like I did sort of have something to prove and... I was always conscious of, right, what, what is it that I'm going to offer, that I can offer, that is different to the people I'm sitting alongside? You know, they are all, they are the former players. I mean, that would be the same feeling for, for any commentator, you know, journalist commentator, someone who hasn't played the game at a, yeah. at a high level. But it was sort of doubly so because of my gender and you know, everything we've just talked about. So it was, right, what, what, can, I, what can I offer that, that demonstrates that I know the game and can give a little bit more. And for me, it's always just research. Research, storytelling, um, bringing the journal journalese to the commentary and yeah, leaning on using your summarizers are there to talk about the intricacies of the forward defensive stroke. That's not my job. So my job is, and my forte is research, it's description. Yes, it's knowledge and nous about the game, but knowing there are sort of quite well-defined roles and then playing to that strength. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, let's talk about approaching a commentary then. Um, you want to get it right. You do the research. I, I, I know that, that side of it very very well um what do you do to to get yourself there in the frame of mind do you do anything to get the voice there to warm up do you are you conscious as a female broadcaster about the tone and because we all know how uh john who comments on the daily mail website is going to make some remark about um oh she's all screamy um so uh so yeah tell me a little bit about about how you how you approach the technicality of it well, I like to start with an aria and then I do 20 press-ups. No, um, <laughs> no not, much in the way of, <laughs> not much in the way of voice prep. Um, although saying that, when I was, certainly when I was doing early shift, this is not for commentary even, but early shift, I'd be in the car sort of, maybe it's just because it's so early in the day, and uh, I'd do some oms. You ever done oms, Nick? Om. Yes, yes, yes. Om. <laughs> and... And maybe practice some vowels. This really gets your mouth moving. A E I O U. So I haven't. Yeah. Sometimes I'll do that for commentary as well. If if I'm in a quiet moment and yeah, feel it's something mm. that I, I want to do. But otherwise, it's it's in the preparation of the the research. So for me, mm. um, and it's yeah, it's the same if I'm you know, I've done Olympic sports with gymnastics or golf or or tennis. But for for cricket, there's a bit of a routine and. I was listening to John Murray actually talk about how he prepares for football matches the other day. And I think I'm definitely of the John Murray school of, of commentary prep. He's, he's also fastidious in terms of attention to detail. But I feel as if I need to have no stone unturned. It's my job when I'm yeah. behind the mic to know more than the person next to me and more than the uh, listener. So and, know, if we... and know more on your sheet than the probably the... 15 to 20 percent of it that you're actually going to use in the country oh, but if it's totally. there you can relax and and yeah. do your job I mean you I, actually to, to sort of I meant to ask as well when you mentioned doing your sort of first county cricket game the Northamptonshire game or, or whatever I mean you you heard yourself do commentary at that point so so what what did you think of what you heard what do you think of of your voice and your style which people love me asking them <laughs> uh, well I had heard myself commentate before because that again was all part of the the learning and the practice and again I think you know I think the reason why there, there wasn't much going back to that first um, England commentary which is the first high profile commentary that, that I did really there wasn't any backlash and I've never really had, you know, much in the way of sort of criticism. Um, I mean, certainly the odd one and I could quote you some, but on the whole there wasn't. And I think that was because of the air miles that I had done previously. Mm. And again, the fact that I had been afforded the opportunity of going to some county games when I was there reporting, I'd use the time that I wasn't doing my, you know, one minute update every hour to commentate into a tape and listen back and cringe and then commentate again and then listen back <laughs> and cringe some more but but you get better by doing it so 
Well, yes. and that, that, you know, that taps into, you mentioned people who get in touch with you for tips and, and people who get in touch with me. So, you know, what do you think I should do? I want to get into journalism. Or do you want to write or do you want to broadcast? Mm. Oh, maybe broadcast. Then have you started doing it? No. Well, start doing it. I mean, the, yeah. the, the apps, the opportunities, you can have a phone with you, whatever it is. Just start doing it. Listen to yourself back and, and, and critique. And, and you know what, Nick, in what you've been doing at Life Commentary, that is honestly mm. almost like the, the first thing I commentated on was in my uh, postgrad course being asked to just to go out into the into the street and talk for a minute and it was basically like go. who can keep the, the talk going for a minute and that's that's <laughs> you know whether you're news or sports at some stage even in news you know people were asked to commentate on on a on a royal wedding or whatever it might be or you've got to just hold the yeah. airwaves so it's amazing how you can fill a minute by you know describing some leaves on a tree gently wafting or you know, a pigeon which is swooping down to peck a little seed off the ground, you know. Yeah, well, indeed. But also, actually, I mean, you know, while while I know that you've, you know, you've commentated on the Olympics and Commonwealths and, and tennis and golf and, and various things, which is, you know, the the, the lovely opportunity that, that working for a broadcaster like the BBC can give you, you, you also, in terms of stepping into cricket, are in the kind of world where although there can be expl- and will be explosive moments there's there's a very different pace to an awful lot of it and you know you're the fact that you have you have been you know the first woman to have to have become a regular commentator on on TMS is is absolutely brilliant and you know calling ball by ball on what is it ABC radio grandstand in Australia the, these kind of these kind of moments and and institutions where where people are, are getting not only a female voice for the first time but where you're having to find the right rhythm which is probably more so in in that radio sense of obviously painting pictures and and whether it's pigeons flying down on the edge of the um of the boundary or or whatever but there's there's a there's a very definite skill to that conversational style that's that's quite different from you know commentating on a luge time trial or whatever it might be in in an olympics yeah you're right it's not one concentrated burst is it cricket's really conversational and from chats with Aggers you know before I you know, took to the microphone I'd have an opportunity to you know, talk to him about the rhythms of, of test commentary which are different even to the rhythms of a T20 because the pace of the game is just different so for test match commentary yeah it, he always likened it to and I tried to take that on board the sense of two friends sitting at a ground watching the game and passing conversation between them but it is still an art form I feel you know it, to, to kind of crack to really be natural and at ease to have a conversation and then go back to the action have a conversation there's still times Nick where I, I will describe a ball and then I've completely forgotten where, where what we were talking about <laughs> so, so even even now after all these years and it's been a lot of years uh, yeah even, even now still I'll get a mind blank you know we'll be talking about something bowler comes runs in bowls and maybe it's a glorious fall through the offside and something at you know some event happens yeah. and then you go oh, well, where were we yeah. <laughs> I'm terribly sorry I'm being such bad company I'm commentating on this cricket game while I'm having a chat with you <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's what Agus has absolutely down to it is that such a relaxed style of, of conversation and at ease but yet using your voice as as an instrument isn't it in commentary so that if anybody turns on the radio at any one moment well, A, they, they want to know what the score is, so that's the most important thing. But using your voice as an instrument, they should be able to tell within the first few seconds of listening what sort of phase the game is is in. You know, is it is there a slight urgency to your voice? Is it a run chase nearing conclusion? Or is it 
the meandering phase you know we're heading towards lunch mm. uh, you know yeah, really scoring important. rates only about two and over <laughs> yeah and that that I think I love about it as well maybe that's something to do with the you know my sort of love of music as well that sense of using your your voice yeah as, as an instrument and, a, and an indicator yeah, I think that's hugely valid, and and regular listeners to Q Commentator will have certainly heard plenty of of musicality and and music playing a part in in the whole thing. Um, what what moments have you particularly enjoyed in in the commentaries that you've done? And I'm not talking necessarily you know great lines, but but have there been moments that you sort of put the mic down and gone that that was a treat, that was or or, or even I nailed that, you know? I mean, that's what that's kind of what I'm asking really. Yeah, oh, there's. There's loads, actually. Um, some of them, I think upset moments are always amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, can, I can remember being in centre court commentary box for Five Live commentating on Wimbledon when Nick Kyrgios first came on the scene and knocked out Rafael Nadal. So that was, that was an amazing moment, Nadal going out, and I was on air for the, uh, the climactic set and the, the match point for that one. Uh, gymnastics has given me so many amazing moments at, at the Olympics, and the Olympics was a real dream that that really was I suppose that wasn't sort of initially on my my radar because I had gone into broadcasting kind of through a real particular cricket focused route and my eyes got open to multi-sport events when I got asked to go to the Commonwealth Games in 2006 in Melbourne to do updates and that was actually what I was doing in Beijing at the 08 Olympics as well until I got a phone call saying Great Britain's got someone in the final of the pommel horse we don't have a gymnastics reporter because we weren't expecting it you know this to happen could you go to the gymnastics <laughs> arena? And so I, did, like, John, I, I remember John Inverdale throwing to me on air saying, well, we're going to five live moment of history now. We're going to have five lives first ever pommel horse commentary. <laughs> and <laughs> no pressure. My knowledge, my knowledge of the pommel horse at that stage had amounted to a three minute conversation with the late Mitch Fenner, who was the BBC television gymnastics commentator, wow. who actually happened to be a TMS fan as well. So he was, I think he was quite pleased to, to have a chat with me and I was even more pleased to have a chat with him because I just said Mitch give me the basics of a pommel horse commentary just give me a little bit of lingo so I can sound as if I know what I'm talking about and just give me some key things to look out for and I just said to myself I've just got to keep this as simple as possible and and I managed to describe again saying what you see is what commentary is so Mm. you can walk outside your front door and talk for a minute about whatever is going on in life you can commentate on pretty much anything as as long as you've got a little you know enough detail of the crucial things you need to know so yeah I was able to commentate on on Lewis Smith winning a historic um yeah bronze medal wasn't it in the 2008 Olympics but then Max Whitlock has been an absolute uh, superstar. So I've really enjoyed the duels between Max and, and Lewis in particular with Pommel Horse and Max's double gold uh, at Rio was stupendous and the team bronze that the GB men got at London 2012 was an absolute highlight without question because there was an upset, there was a Pommel Horse inquiry and then <laughs> tipped them to silver. You're fully experienced so, on that by then. <laughs> oh yeah I had sort of become a mini gymnastics expert so I had then had the privilege of going to every world and European um, championships in between Olympic cycles so it became my Olympic sport mm. uh, and Beth Tweddle an absolute superstar you know it's been wonderful real privilege to have followed you know the latter part of her career as well doing that so yeah so I've, I've spoken about all sorts of highs and none in cricket so far have I that's all right. I mean, it's lovely. That, that's the rich tapestry of the work you've done, which is great. I'll give you a cricket moment, though, because I mean, 
obviously there was moments like England women winning the 2017 World Cup where I was on the microphone for the big moment. But you're not often on the microphone for the big moments because you often, in a test match, you sort of know when the win is coming often. Yeah. And there's a long-standing tradition in test match special that's, well, A, it's oft, often it will be Aggers who will take, you know, the big winning moment um, if it's England. And as happened in the 2005 Ashes, if you remember the tight finish at Edgebaston, felt as the runs ticked down that Australia were going to win that one. So the mic was given to Jim Maxwell as the visiting Australian commentator right. to call what was possibly, probably going to be the Australian winning moment. As it was, he ended up commentating on England, you know, yeah. won by two runs and an iconic piece of commentary from Jim. But yeah, as, as a sort of yeah, more junior member of the team, um, it was yeah, often unlikely that I was ever going to be on for one of those massive TMS kind of winning moments. Yeah. But I had quite a few where I was on, on air live with Five Live doing that. So World Cup 2011, um, uh, an incredible tied game, Bangalore, and Sachin Tendulkar sort of dominating and Andrew Strauss dominating with 100 of his own. Um, an amazing Tendulkar moment, actually, at the 2008 India tour. So this was after the tour had resumed after the Mumbai terror attack. So the country was in a state of turmoil. There were you know, umpteen security at the ground in Chennai. And Tendulkar at that stage, there was a bit of a monkey on his back about the fact that he had never really scored a, a big second innings to win a match for India. He never scored a second in his hundred to, to take them to a victory. And Saywag, England set them what was at the time was going to be a record run chase. Saywag went berserk the night before to sort of set things up. But Tendulkar took over and he was on like 90, I can't remember. Let's say it was, I think, 96 or not or 98. He hit a four to both bring up his hundred and win this test match for India in the wake of the Mumbai terror attack. He dedicated that victory to all of Mumbai and to India. He was a Mumbaiker himself. And just a real groundswell of, of emotion in that one flourishing stroke for four. The hundred, the win, mm. the monkey off his back, doing it for India, healing Mumbai. It was just a really moving moment in cricket. And one, that's certainly one which has stayed with me. And it, it wasn't even an England victory. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I'm not surprised. Amazing. What would you say are... Uh your favourite bits of the job, your favourite bits of, of commentating, let's say, first of all? Ooh, it's a toughie. <laughs> I, I think it is when you, yeah, when you're living a moment, when you're so wrapped up in it with your, the person next to you, with the crowd, with the, the action. It's actually akin to a, a sort of a mindfulness, almost. I honestly think it is. It's like you, you go into a, a zone, you know, sportsmen mm. and women have a zone where they're in. And when you're really so involved in it, I think that's probably when you do your best commentary as well, because you're you're just riding everything sort of perfectly and it's in sync and you don't even notice mm. the passage of time. So when someone taps you on the shoulder and says, oi, get out the seats, your time is up and you feel like you've only <laughs> just sat down, that kind of means that you've yeah, had, a, had a really fun uh, 20 minutes behind the mic. Um, yeah, the laughs. The, la the laughs are a brilliant aspect of it on air when you feel like you've, you sat down, just spent a really enjoyable 20 minutes with someone watching mm. something that you both love. So it's fueling a passion, really. 
Yeah, we are yeah. really, really lucky to do something that, that we love so much. Yeah, and I guess you know I touched on it earlier, but the the nature of something like TMS and cricket broadcasting and the and the more ebb and flow and conversational style of it there is, I guess you know part of it. We know that sport is about entertainment, sort of at the end of the day. But you know, there's a lot of money in it, high stakes, very very committed athletes and that kind of thing. But actually, the role that you must play in that time to to ensure there's some entertainment alongside perhaps the high stakes sporting stuff or you know low stakes sporting drama which <laughs> it can be at times it, yeah. it is a responsibility as well yeah and, and what's also really gratifying is when you realize actually what we do touches people as well because sometimes you know yeah you can have a, a sort of mediocre day you might not feel completely up for it like everyone does in any job that they do like we can't always be perfect and be on it all of the time I mean yeah it's our job to get up for it for sure but you know, every now and again, like you'll get an email from either someone who's visually impaired and is blind and tells you that you have painted the pictures of cricket for them. That is kind of, uh, you know, it's it's so gratifying. Um, you know, you, you turn around in the commentary box, you don't know who might be standing behind you and you realise that they're a massive fan of the of the programme and, and, and they, you know, appreciate sort of, you know, what, what you do. Because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, what we do is not important you know we're not saving lives we're not looking after people in hospitals like the NHS are at the moment but then and I think also some of the response to commentaries that have been replayed out you know during these corona times when there is no live sport people Mm. are remembering how much sport does mean to them and actually how it can transport you to a happier place so there is a role for it and you can feel a little bit useful in sometimes quite you know an otherwise helpless situation as we're in at the moment but yeah, certainly I think when, you, when you're able to step back and when other people tell you what it means to them, that's a really gratifying thing because yeah, what, what we do is not important in the grand scheme of life, but it can be really important and can touch people's lives in a way that, that you just don't realise. I think radio sometimes in particular because of the very um, sort of close nature of it, the very personable mm. and private sometimes nature of it, you know, people letting you into their homes, into their cars, under their duvets sometimes in the middle of the night when Indeed, we're watching yeah. the ashes. In, in, <laughs> into the bath with them or whatever it might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, some, some of that listener feedback is really, really touching. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, and I was sort of, you know, I asked for the commentary bit to begin with and, and the next bit was going to be the romance bit, perhaps, you know, the the obviously there's the travelling the world and getting to watch the sport, but I think you probably probably covered it off in terms of actually that feeling of... of being privileged enough to to bring those feelings to people or play that role in in being company and and those sorts of things. I mean, it, it's come up in the in the silly sillier side of commentary and the videos that I've been doing in in people getting in touch and saying thank you for for making me laugh and giving me something um, you know that's that's taken me out of my head for a few minutes. So uh, so there's there is a value to that. Um, what do you think with with the experience that you've that you've had over the years? What do you think makes a good commentary? And and I ask that from from you know, from cricket to gymnastics to, to Wimbledon. What do you what do you think makes a good one? Oh, there's sort of all sorts of elements that blend together, aren't there? And so mm-hmm. much of it relies on the action as well. You know, when people say yeah. what's a memorable bit of commentary, it's usually attached to a memorable piece of sporting drama. So without the sport, you know, you need the sports better than women to do their bit and give you something amazing to commentate on. And then it's your True. job to augment the moments because we are augmenting it. You know, the moment is not us. It is about giving the moment to the the viewers and the listeners. Um, so, yeah, I suppose overall, though, if you take a package, commentary in its very basic form is 
telling people what's happening who are not there to see it themselves. So you've got to be informative. Um, you want to be entertaining because it is an entertaining uh, industry and that can be in the cadence mm -hmm. of your voice. It can be with the, uh, the interactions with your summarizer. It can be with the, the choice of words you use, the language, the anecdote that you tell, the observation that you make. And, and it's, of course, informative because you're you know, telling people what is happening. And again, radio and TV, there's, there's differences, aren't there? Radio is so much more about painting the picture because the, the audience isn't there to see it themselves. Unless, of course, they've got a little earpiece you know, in, the, in the ground and they're watching and listening at the mm. same time. But I think all those things wrap in together. The, the rapport that you have with your summariser next to you goes into the mix as well. But being able to convey a moment of drama, I reckon if, if you've got a, an amazing moment of drama, if you're able to give someone goosebumps, I think you've done a pretty good job in terms of a moment of commentary. But then commentary is so much more than that one moment. There's that clippable moment that goes into the archives. But actually, yeah, the great commentators are, are those who you could switch on at, at any time and sort of appreciate the, the fullness of, of what they're doing. I think if, when I get to the point of turning Q commentator the series into a book, I'm, I'm probably going to have to have to have a chapter that says how to give someone goosebumps, and I may have to get on the phone and, and get a more direct uh, <laughs> lesson for a view on that. Um, I mean, you mentioned your summarizers and, and co-commentators, however, however we want to call them, um, and obviously whether it's Ian Chapel and Jeff Boycott or or whoever else on on gymnastics and tennis. Um, how do you find those relationships? Do you find them easy to come by? I'm not necessarily looking for a rap sheet, obviously, on all the people you've worked with, but but it is about establishing a relationship sometimes pretty quickly. Perhaps if you're if you're diving into something um, or it's it's quick, you know, court to court stuff at Wimbledon, and suddenly someone's rostered on differently because another game's overrun or, or those kind of things. So it, it is important for those relationships to come across well, isn't it? Yeah, I remember meeting John T. Rhodes, the great South, Afri South African cricketer. I met him on the airwaves as he sat down next to me to commentate at a <laughs> World T20 game. I was like, hi, John T., nice to meet you. And, and then you don't really have long to establish rapport. It's, uh, no. it is, it's eye contact, it's a smile, it's a bit of body language. It's sort of opening up your shoulders to sort of just be a bit inclusive with them. There's lots of subtle... Well, there are things which I don't even think you, you think about doing, but... No, but that's good stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, people, people who have observed others in the box have noted the way we kind of interact without even thinking about it. But, yeah, certainly getting to know people away from the microphone absolutely helps when you're on the microphone. And that's where cricket in particular lends itself well, because we simply spend so much time with each other. And when you consider the first... Yeah, the first England trip I did, and generally the length of a, an England test at an ODI tour is two months. You know, that's quite an inordinate wow, yeah. you know, an amount of time to go away on a work trip. And if you're doing that on a regular basis, yeah, you become a little family, um, you know, a home from home, if you like. And my, my colleagues sort and what, of became And what's your like role in most of the families that, that you're away with? Well, thankfully, not a sort of mother figure, which would be what you might expect. <laughs> no, no, you know, we all, we all muck, muck in together. Um, and, and happily now, and, you know, the environment has become, I always say, much more normal now because there are other women um, who are commentating. And, you know, in particular, yeah. obviously, the numbers are greater if you cover a women's tournament. There tend to be more female commentators because you've got the ex-players who are summarising, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, that's one of the great things I, I'm grateful about in my career. I feel I've been able to make a difference. I would have felt as if all that, the effort and the pressure that I put myself under to do those 
first commentaries that I did would have been somewhat of a waste if I had merrily, you know, gone through a 20 year career and then afterwards there was no other women and the next person, whenever they did it, had to kind of put themselves under the whole same pressure that I went through. So mm. I'm, I'm really pleased. There's a whole cohort of whether it's ex-players who now have an opportunity to step into the media, A, because women's sports got a greater profile, and B, because women's voices talking about sport in the commentary box is, has been normalised. And yeah, I would have felt that all that pressure would have been a waste if, um, yeah, if the next person had to sort of go through what I went through. That's not to say that, yeah. that, those, that those commentating in, in, in the box, you know, women are still having you know, various sort of negative experiences, largely from social media and that sort of thing. Um, but I think the actual environment, the industry is fully embracing and accepting of it now. And that's, that's, a, that's yeah. a huge step. Yeah, certainly. And and I know, you know, when, when I spoke to Sarah and her talking about Pete Stevens at BBC London saying, I think you should commentate, and her response being, why? Because <laughs> she did, she, she just couldn't see that there was any point because there was nowhere to go in her mind. There was, there no one had done it before. So therefore, why would there be a point to starting now when there isn't a future in it, which obviously she has helped uh, create and, uh, and and others like others like Jackie and yourself do. I mean, you know, I, I do an awful lot of work in the women's rugby game. And it was one of my things as I think I mentioned before that you know my sister played, my cousin played, my dad had refed women's rugby. I wanted to make sure I embraced any opportunity to cover women's sport as someone interested in it, rather than to be a I don't know a career commentator that thought, okay, I probably have to do some of this women's stuff to get where I want to be. You know, absolutely relish and, and love covering it, and and so I get I, I'm often in and around plenty of people that understand the challenges that women's sport has um, and therefore to understand where women's commentators come from. And, you know, it, it's not something that I'm, I'm here with you to ring a massive bell on because these these conversations are happening more and more, which is great. Um, but, you know, obviously someone like Sarah had had a touch of the imposter syndrome. And when you mentioned earlier being 21 years of age and, and backing yourself and believing that you'll get there and you'll do it I think that, that that's a brilliant that says a lot about you perhaps but but also you must feel pleased to see the landscape changing and and I want I guess the question is do you feel less pressure now to to be the person waving the flag that lets other people through the gate or, or have you relaxed into it knowing that okay there are still challenges out there probably as a woman compared to a man more so but but that things are, are, are moving more positively yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly much more able to be, well, I am able to be me in the commentary box and just in the, in the work environment now. Mm. Um, there was a sense, even when I started, that I wanted to blend in, I suppose. And I wouldn't wear, sounds funny to say, I wouldn't wear particularly feminine clothes. Um, mm. I think it was a long time before I wore a skirt to work, for example. Right. I mean, I was a bit yeah, of a tomboy growing up anyway. So, I mean, I'm, you know, jeans, you know, I'm T-shirt and jeans now. I mean, that's kind of what I live in. But, um, you know, I love getting dressed up and all the rest of it. But I, I didn't overtly, uh, yeah, go into a commentary box wearing high heels and a skirt because it wasn't, yeah, I, I would have massively stood out and I didn't want to have anybody regarding me in any other way other than a commentator it was it was yeah strange when I think back of it now but I, I relish and love the fact that you know I and hopefully all the other women I work with can can be themselves and it is a as I said the environment is much more normal 
to spend mm. your working life amongst men and women. Um, you know, I think even now, though, if I went on an England tour, I would in all likelihood probably still be the only female in the press pack. If thinking about the, the touring English media, for example, at the moment, and I think those who travel with England of the written press, there's, there wouldn't be a female that travels. Um, in the TMS team, yeah, you would have sort of myself, you'd have yeah, Ebony, it'd be in the broadcast sense, you know, where the Isha would tour, you would, yeah, on the written front though, there's still very few females that do the, yeah. do the full touring thing. Um, but those of us who are there, you can, you can be yourself. You really can. And that's a huge mm. part of the authenticity of, of commentating. And I wouldn't ever say that I, I wasn't myself when I was on air, but there were certain elements that I did rein back, such as, I, I guess, sort of, you know, not wanting to, you know, be overtly feminine at that time because I didn't want to draw attention to that fact. Whereas yeah. I think it's much more easily embraced now. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Mm. Very well put. Um, you talk about uh, the working life there. I mean, in, in terms of how the broadcast landscape looks in, in, let's, I mean, probably I'm talking cricket here rather than the other bits and pieces you do. I mean, I know you worked on, on TV and, and you went to Channel 4 and Channel 5 and, um, and BBC Radio and all, all these sides of things. How do you, how do you see a, a future career? Does it worry you that there are less and less jobs for life in the way that there used to be in broadcasting and, and that the landscape is is three years of rights with this person or this broadcaster and then over to someone else are you are you calm about the future it does feel precarious I think even more so with the situation we're in right now um, with coronavirus for sure and uncertainties over travel um, let alone uncertainties over rights but yeah you can you can be highly successful in what you're doing and then through no fault of your own, a rights deal finishes and, and your, your job ends and you don't necessarily automatically get picked up by the next person because they've got their cohort, you know, that broadcaster. And so it is quite a precarious industry. I think the portfolio career is, is the best way that you can manage it, is, is having different... Do you mean by multi-sport? Um, either multi-sport and just even multi, multi-occupations in a sense. So... I really enjoy the fact that I have a podcast that I do as well. So I've got the presenting side of it. Um, I occasionally, less of late, but I'd present the sport on the Today programme and I'd have the cricket. And then, yes, tennis, Olympics, different elements. So that actually if any if one falls down, you've got others to juggle. I think, I think that is probably the best way of, of managing careers in our industry now. It's very unusual for you know, somebody to be almost kind of full time with one broadcaster, it just doesn't, it rarely happens um, these days. So yeah, as an industry, I think being agile is a really important aspect of it. And being able to accept change and roll with change and adapt. So multi-skilling, broadening your horizons, um, having an openness to change as well, like we can all get quite sort of fixed in our ways sometimes so you know it's a great lesson right now with sports sort of halted due to covid is thinking well yeah what will the future look like and it's mm. given everyone a chance to say well what else can i do and again it's that attitude and mindset isn't it not about what what can't i do at the moment what i can't do is commentate on cricket right now but it's having a can do attitude and thinking focusing on the the opportunities rather than the things that potentially certainly temporarily have been taken away yeah and and perhaps people like yourself who 
who have just done it from the beginning are, are going to be the you know going to continue to be the sort of people that can do the opportunities that come up. Um, just before I get to the the sort of last question, there was something actually that that I, I made a note on and I uh, I didn't ask at the time. So this will sort of drop into an earlier uh, chat really. But um, you mentioned when we first talked about you're playing sport at school and at university the sort of you know living through the pain of the penalties all this kind of mm-hmm. thing um i just wanted to to ask how much do you find um or do you think it's valid perhaps to be able to draw on amateur sporting experience amateur moments of of sporting psychology that you might have had not to a high level necessarily or you know not as a paid professional but but that give you insight as someone who's now got a broadcaster's microphone to be able to I don't know take that to the listener with a little bit of you going with it I suppose it goes into the mix doesn't it because everything that you are watching you're you're viewing through the lens of your your past experiences and so I suppose you can you can have a certain empathy I mean not not to the extent as obviously of knowing what it's like to be a professional out there in that instant with you know 50,000 people or more uh, watching yeah. you and crowds and so on but uh, I suppose being whether you've been a sports fan or you've played it I think the fact that you have the ability and that empathy or just the sensibilities to ride the highs and lows of the, of the moment is probably what goes into the mix of commentating because you know, there would there, you know, there's absolutely sports that I've commentated on that I have never played that particular sport um, in my life, you know, I've I've certainly never swung myself around a asymmetric bars or you know <laughs> done a backflip <laughs> on a balance beam or a round off double twisting Yachenko. Um, I look, I look forward to you ordering those from Amazon while we're in <laughs> lockdown and uh, catching up on your progress. Yeah, it's my next order of Uber. Um, <laughs> and I guess part of it, where you have had experience, or at least if you've had the experience of of finding the mental challenge of being in a high stakes final, whether it's at school or university or whatever, you've got some empathy. It might not be to the scale of of the person out there in the middle in front of a fifty thousand crowd, but actually some empathy, perhaps to to bring your co commentator in or or have the insight to ask the right question of the person who has the proper experience, because maybe it occurs to you this is probably where they're at, and and I think that 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 would be my opinion, maybe on on, on where it's it's got a bit more relevance. Yeah, bringing your, your summariser in and, and teasing out what they felt at the time, I mean, that is what they're there mm. for. I suppose being a, first and foremost, if you're a sports fan, your greatest empathy is kind of with, with your listener, with your audience and with the, with the crowd. Yeah. And actually as True. a commentator, maybe that's part, maybe that's what makes it the, the most, the important thing to ride with because you're, at, you're projecting to them. They're the people who you're talking to and, your your what you want to draw out an ability to sort of translate the tension that they are experiencing and to transmit that to those who aren't at the spectacle themselves to bring yeah. that drama in so that those people who aren't in the stadium they can feel that very same tension as well so i think yeah. the fact that if you're a, if you're a sports lover even if you haven't actually played that sport you identify and therefore can communicate the tension and the drama of the moment maybe that's where it comes who out there do you think is doing good work at the moment with the commentary mic in hand Oof. 
There's no one who's not really. Um, it's a you know, massively sort of competitive field in a way. If you look at you know the, the number of commentators, actually, is what has yeah. ballooned. Opportunity now has never been so great because of, speaking from a cricketing sense, um, the myriad of T20 tournaments that have sprung up, domestic leagues, and the the proliferation of those means there's now more opportunity than ever, which is only a good thing because again, when I think of when I started. I looked around the the local radio scene, which is where you you know w- wanted to cut your teeth, and every lo- local radio station had one person who was their cricket reporter who had been doing that job for the last twenty years and was probably going to be doing it for the next twenty years. You think, well, where where do you even get your chance? Whereas yeah. know, BBC Radio now doing commentary on every run them over in the car park is how you get your chance. No, sorry, I don't <laughs> are you speaking from experience, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you now look at the number of commentaries that the BBC puts out every summer and the number of commentators who are able to be involved um, is amazing. And then you step up to that international level and the, the leagues going around the world and people who are kind of living life out of suitcases and, and travelling around doing cricket, there, there is so much opportunity. So I think that, that keeps everyone on their toes of making sure that, yeah, you're, you're still the best that you can be, um, which is probably only a you know, good thing for the listener, I suppose, that we're all um, yeah trying to, trying to strive to carry on doing a good job all the time you can't you can't get complacent that's for sure yeah looking over our shoulders the whole time um looking at the moment the moment in the future that you you decide that uh you know it, it it's all been enough you've you've been given your opportunity to have your last dream gig um it can be a one-off one day international it could be over a weekend could be over a week um what would be your dream last gig Ooh, dream final gig well, if we could just replay the 2019 World Cup final, um, I wouldn't mind having a crack at that. I mean, what what an amazing, unbelievable roller coaster of a day, and and the way that it and the yeah. way that it finished. Uh, but what's coming up? We've got yeah, we've got other World Cups. We've got T20 World Cups, um, Ashes. I've been fortunate to be able to say the words "England have won the Ashes" in a women's sense. So it'd be pretty cool to yeah, yeah call a, a men's Ashes home, um, and indeed to yeah, call a winning moment on a men's World Cup because I've called the winning moment on a women's. So perhaps okay. they would be they'd be sort of bucket list ones always. You want you want a winning moment, don't you? You probably do. I'm yeah, be greedy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fine. That's absolutely fine. So uh, so yeah, so men's Ashes final, uh, calling that home, and uh, and a couple more World Cups. Um, that sounds that sounds good to me. Um, Ali, thank you so much uh, for your time. Um, you're clearly someone that uh, is dedicated to their prep and, and therefore their craft that, that comes through in, in all the work that you do and, and you are managing what uh, what comes across as a, as a great and very nicely balanced career. But all, all power to you um, for that continuing and uh, and we look forward to hearing you when you're next on the airwaves and, and for those listening during lockdown for, uh, for when we've got some sport for you as well. Thank you very much. Cheers, Nick. You keep up your good work as well. Great fun. Thank you. Well, my thanks to Ali Mitchell, who uh, I think you'll agree was another superb guest. Um, I particularly enjoyed hearing about how the, uh, well, the sport occasionally gets in the way of having a chat with your summarisers on TMS. It's uh, If that doesn't tell you about the style of TMS, I don't know what does. Um, I also loved hearing how Alison got into commentating on the pommel horse. Wasn't that great? Um, it has to be said and will be said, no doubt, another hundred times, I'm sure. But, uh, well, those opportunities when working for a national broadcaster to turn your 
your hand to other sports. Just incredible. Um, I also really like what Alison said about feeling that early pressure, but now hoping that the work she's done has made it easier for other women to follow suit. So quite right too. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. iTunes to leave me a review. Uh, please do. It's at you commentator on Twitter. I'm on at Nick Heath Sport. Series three starts next week. Hooray! You take care. Keep well. And bye for now. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.